A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, my name is Sarah Collette, and recently I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Trent D. Stevens, a professor emeritus of anatomy and embryology from Idaho State University. He is also a worldwide expert on thalidomide and its effects in peoples around the world. He has co-published Evolution and Mormonism, A Quest for Understanding, and Who Are the Children of Lehi, which addresses the uh, issue of DNA and Book of Mormon Origins. Trent is married to his to his wife Kathleen. They have five children and 13 grandchildren. Recently, he sat down with me at Idaho State University and we were able to have a discussion about evolution and Mormonism. A few years ago, I encountered his book while writing a paper to finish my degree and I found it to be helpful in resolving some of the issues that I had had reconciling science and religion. So today I'm excited to share with you the interview that we had together at Idaho State University. Enjoy. Welcome to a Thoughtful Faith podcast. My name is Sarah Collette and I'm here with um, Dr. Trent Stevens. And he is a professor emeritus of anatomy and embryology he co-authored two books, Evolution and Mormonism, which is how I encountered him, and Who Are the Children of Lehi, which addresses the issue of DNA in the Book of Mormon Origins. Um, we are going to start by um, having you explain where you stand in the church today. What's your relationship to the church? And just give us a little bit of who you are and how you feel about things currently. Well, currently, uh, my wife and I are not uh, in our home ward. Uh, we have both been called um, nearly a year ago now to serve in a branch here in Pocatello within our own stake that uh, um, is made up of people who live in two apartment buildings. Uh, they're subsidized apartment buildings for elderly people or people who have um, some sort of handicap. This is a specific calling. I'm the Melchizedek priesthood leader in the branch. Most people, even in Pocatello, outside of our own stake, don't know much about it. Um, is, it a, is it a specific program that's comprehensive, or is it just here in this area? Or I don't know. There are other, uh, other stakes that have it, but our, our stake has decided to, uh, to solve a specific need, this specific kind of calling. So uh, my wife is the Relief Society president, uh, and so we have a branch presidency, um, my, my wife and, and I, and probably a half a dozen other couples who are called to serve in this branch uh, from within the stake. Uh, so we have a, a lot of leadership. It's sort of like being called on a mission within our own, within our own stake. It's, it's a wonderful calling. We love it. In addition to that, we're both temple workers uh, at the Idaho Falls Temple. 
uh, and I'm a home teacher in the branch. Uh, and So very involved. Very involved in the church. I have been from the day I was born. Now, never been a time when I wasn't totally active in the church. Okay. Um, so you mentioned from the day you were born. Can, can we now go back and will you tell me a little bit about your childhood and especially in reference to did your faith or did religion ever come into conflict, conflict with your love for science? Did your family encourage it? Sure. Um, well, first of all, my activity in the, in the, in the church, uh, my, my mother, I have four older sisters, uh, and my oldest sister is 20 years older than me. My youngest sister is five years older than me. And uh, my mother took us all to church from the time I was very young. My father was not active in the church. Um, had a problem with uh, cigarette smoking, and and uh, I uh, abhorred cigarettes from the time I was old enough to know what they were. Uh, and uh, he didn't become active in the church until I was about 12. And then he ended up dying of... Uh, of a stroke, uh, and he had emphysema as a result of his cigarette smoking. So uh, that that enhanced my abhorrence for cigarette smoking. And uh, so in terms of my uh, career interests, until I was about um, five or six, I wanted to be a cowboy. And then after that, I wanted to be an architect. I, I love art. I'm an artist. And uh, so I was very interested in architecture for a couple of years. Uh, by the time I was in about the 7th or 8th grade, I had decided that I not only wanted to become a scientist, but I wanted to specifically be a biologist. Uh, I was interested in how life moves from one place to another. Um, how, how is it that you can set out a, a bowl of water and all sorts of things start swimming around in it? And, and and that was my that was those were the kind of thoughts I had when I was about uh, seven or uh, seventh or eighth grade. Wow. Okay. So from a very early age. Very early age. And my objective uh, was to uh, take on the theory of evolution and demonstrate that it was not correct. So you were of the understanding that that was the evolution was a bad thing. Uh, that was that was the way I was sort of grew up uh, being in the church was that. There was this general feeling that it was wrong. Uh, so um, at that age, um, I was not at all hesitant to um, call out people who had written papers on evolution. Really? Like who? Like who? You know, it's it's interesting. I was trying to remember the circumstances, but it was. It seems like it was in a, a ma- it was in a major magazine at the time, so this would have been about 1960, somewhere in that time period. Uh, and it w- would have been, it was a, I think it was an article like in a Life magazine, or it may have been in one of the newspaper inserts, this, this article about evolution. And so I wrote to the author and pointed out that there were some uh, weak links in evolution. And he was very kind. He wrote back and thanked me for for my letter, and, and encouraged me to stay interested in science. Where did the ideas come from? I mean, was it just church? And I, I don't think it had anything to do with church teachers, per se. Uh, it was just, uh, well, in my family, we were very 
uh, keen on education. Education was a very important thing to my mother, particularly. Uh, we played educational games uh, all the time. Um, our favorite, one of our favorite games was the, was the card game Authors. Uh, so I knew all the famous authors from a very young age. Um, and education was just encouraged. Uh, we had, my mother had early on um, won uh, a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, and we were encouraged to use it um, a lot. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I had a strong natural curiosity. And I, and I don't, as I said, I don't think I wasn't, it was particularly encouraged by any of my teachers. It was just something that I had grown up uh, with this thought that evolution had some real deficiencies in it. And so for, I, I distinctly remember from my, my eighth grade graduation, so uh, where I grew up uh, in Malta, Idaho, we went from, we had grade school and high school. There was no middle school there. There's nothing in between. So we actually had a graduation ceremony when we finished eighth grade. And uh, then my mother asked me what I wanted as a gift for my graduation. And, and uh, it wasn't that I didn't have a father. My father was a little bit more remote. He was a farmer and was working a lot. And he was fairly quiet. So your mother represented was, the both of them. She did. Uh, most of the time, yes. Uh, he was quiet and stubborn. If, if there was something that she, that she wanted him to do that he didn't want to do, he just didn't do it. He didn't say anything about it. He just didn't do it. So, so she was very uh, vocal. But anyway, uh, I, and I told her that I wanted a book called Chromosome Numbers in Animals because, to me, chromosomes represented a major barrier to evolution. Every, every species of animal has a specific number of chromosomes. So my question is, if it, a lot of people talk about speciation and talk about morphology. I was interested in speciation from a genetic chromosomal perspective. You know, if one animal has, say, 20 pairs of chromosomes, and the next related species to it has 23, well, how do you go from 20 chromosomes to 23 chromosomes? How do you make that leap? And no one uh, had really addressed that issue by 19. 60, to my knowledge. Right, so you wanted to take that on? Yeah, so I, decided, I was writing a, a major scientific paper. Um, At, in eighth grade. How, how old is that? I think that's 14, 13? 13, yeah. <laughs> wow. Something like that. And, uh, and, and so I, uh, I, I carefully plotted. I had this big, long sheet of paper that I carefully plotted the number of chromosomes for each species going from very simplistic species up to up to humans and and it just as i predicted it just went up and down there was no trend at all and one would have expected some kind of a general trend in chromosome number it didn't it didn't it was totally in opposition to evolution as far as i could see and so i i thought well you know nobody's ever looked for this before and i have found the key to, <laughs> to disproving. disproving evolution right so when i went to college when I started my freshman year at BYU. When I applied there, I listed my major as biochemistry and my minor as art. When I got there, I found my major was chemistry because there was no biochemistry major back at that time. What I really wanted to do was major in molecular biology, but the name, the word hadn't even been invented yet. So you didn't know quite what to call it at that point. I didn't know what to call it. The closest thing I could come was biochemistry, and BYU didn't have a biochemistry major. They do now, but they didn't back then. Yeah, so I found myself as a chemistry major. 
And I was taking freshman English, freshman composition. And first semester, you write a, a bunch of short essays. And then the, the spring semester, you write a, a thesis. I decided, well, no time like the present, I will take on the world of evolution in the, my freshman thesis. And, and, I, and I did that from the perspective of chromosome numbers. Wow. So, was there, I mean, at the, at the time at BYU, was there strong attitudes about science, about evolution? Did you, did you kind of fit right in? Well, I, I, in 1966, when I was a freshman at BYU, there was no evolution class taught there. Okay. So they uh, weren't addressing the issues. It, well, I mean, everybody in biology... I really found this out later because I really wasn't in very many biology classes as a freshman because here I was a chemistry major. I didn't really like chemistry, but I really liked my interest in biochemistry was big bio, small chemistry. found myself in chemistry with biology nowhere to be seen. So you didn't really know what was going on. I, I didn't have a lot of insight into what was going on in the biology department in 1966. But, you know, coming back to it a couple of years later, um, the people who were in the biology department were biologists. They were good biologists. And uh, the only reason they weren't teaching evolution is because it was not allowed on the BYU campus so, from so, 1911. So there were people there that did actually like the idea of evolution and accepted Well, they were, it. they were biologists. And if you were, if the, the word evolutionary biologist to me has always been a redundancy in, in terms because you're... <laughs> You're not a biologist unless you uh, are thinking in terms of evolution. It's it's the only theory in biology that is um, comprehensive enough to make things understandable. So it's sort of like saying you're an astrophysicist and you don't believe in gravity. I got it. It's got of, it. That, of that nature. But I think that's generally unknown it in, in like non-science circles. Well, well the, yeah, the, the irony of that is, is that People say, well, evolution is just a theory. Well, so is gravity. Right. <laughs> it, it used to be a law. You know, everybody says, well, the law of gravity. But what people don't understand is a theory is bigger than a law. And, and so the, what was used to be called the law of gravity is now called the gravitational theory, which is much more uh, expansive and comprehensive in its scope. And people outside of the sciences or with little science education really don't understand that, that, that difference. Right. I didn't. I didn't have any idea. And I, and I, growing up, I don't think that I really understood that, um, that evolution was so easily accepted by science, by scientists, because right. the largest representative in my life was the church. And so... I, more, more than anything, I just heard criticism, so I didn't, I didn't come from that perspective at all. And well, it, it's interesting that uh, that that it's not, it's not just the church at that time. Uh, there, there was a um, my wife um, when she was growing up had a an encyclopedia of science in their home, and after we got married, uh, I, I I kind of inherited that with as her dowry, if you will. Many years after the fact, I, I was looking, and I it was just you know kind of interested in, uh, to see what it had to say about uh, evolution because this was published I think in 1954, and it said that evolution was a theory that had been advanced in the 19th century, but no longer was a very was very strongly accepted in the scientific community. What's what's interesting about 
1954 publication in a sort of a popular science encyclopedia, it really harkens back to the uh, era between about 1900 and 1920. When Darwin published The Origin of Species, he admitted that one of the biggest problems that he had was not understanding heredity, the mechanisms of heredity. And ironically, um, Gregor Mendel was publishing his work uh, at about the same time. But Mendel's work really was not discovered until 1900. Well, when Mendel's work was discovered, all of a sudden, genetics created a major barrier to evolution because there was no indication. It, it was very clear that traits were inherited by genes which were discrete entities, and um, mutation had not been yet discovered. I, and, and, I mean, mutation as such was known for a long time, but mutation from a genetic perspective had not been discovered. And so it, it created a huge problem for, uh, for evolution. So let me just make sure that I understand this for the listeners that don't have a background in science as well. So basically, the um, survival of the fittest says that based on um, the surroundings and the environment, um, species would, the, the most fit species would continue to propagate and those that weren't would die off. And Mendel is saying that there's a molecular level that determines all of this, and so they come in contradiction. Is that right? Right. And, and there, was, there was no uh, evidence at all that Mendelian genetics could be uh, m- uh, mutated, that, that could be changed. Uh, the word mutation had existed, but it, but it existed sort of in a broad uh, perspective in terms of morphological changes that people knew were hereditary, but they didn't know how. They didn't know the mechanisms. Uh, and Mendelian genetics seemed to create a huge problem for, uh, for Darwin's natural selection. So between 1900 and 1924, actually, uh, there, was a, there was a period there when many, even leading scientists, uh, wrote negatively uh, about the theory of evolution and its future. And, and so what you're doing in 1954, things didn't happen, things didn't move forward into the, into the general public as rapidly as they do now. And so what was being published in the 1954 encyclopedia was hearkening back to this 24-year period right at the turn of the century. And interestingly enough, a lot of uh, creationists today, a lot of anti-evolutionists today are still quoting statements that were made between 1900 and 1920. Wow. So yeah. they're still going that far back. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's part of the problem. And, and, you know, when they say, well, scientists say this, unfortunately, the general public doesn't know that that scientist, uh, in is many cases, dead. is long. Right. So uh, when T.H. Um, Morgan finally demonstrated the concept of mutation and uh, how... That, and that, and the genes are associated with chromosomes and the, really the foundation of modern genetics and introduced what we now call neo-Darwinism, where instead of genetics being uh, at odds with evolution, now the two are the most powerful um, functioning forces in the whole field of biology. So 
that's that was the kind of the setting, and, and 1966 was not that far removed from 1954. Back in those days. So you were writing your paper. And very quickly, almost uh, immediately, I discovered a series of papers by, and I can't remember his first name. His last name was Carter. And he worked on Hawaiian Drosophila, uh, fruit flies, in Hawaii, in the Hawaiian island chain. And what he demonstrated very elegantly in his series of papers is that uh, chromosome rearrangements and chromosome number changes <clears throat> uh, followed the speciation trend in these fruit flies uh, absolutely precisely. And that whole sections of the chromosome could be reversed, uh, that pieces could be broken off, make whole new chromosomes made. Uh, my error at the ripe old age of 13 or you know, now... 17, was in, in not understanding how very dynamic and plastic the whole chromosome genetic mechanism is. And I started writing out, writing a paper that refuted evolution based on chromosomes, and I ended up writing a paper that supported evolution based on the chromosome uh, evidence. At that time, did you feel that there was any that that affected your faith at all? Did it, did it come in conflict, or was it completely separate? Uh, n it's never been separate in my life. Science and religion have never been separate issues. I've never compartmentalized my thinking, uh, and it didn't cause any conflict in my mind at all. It didn't. It didn't cause a hesitation. I didn't. I didn't doubt the church for one moment. I didn't doubt science for one moment. Uh, I've, because I've grown up firmly believing that truth will prevail and that all truth is ultimately reconcilable. Right. So the fact that there were um, church leaders, prophets or apostles or that maybe were in opposition to that, that didn't give you any pause? Yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a letter to Harold B. Lee at one time. You did? Yes. President Lee had written in the uh, first presidency message in the ensign, uh, this, um, well, when, when was President Lee president? He, it, was, it had to have been after I came back from my mission. Um, but he said something to the effect that the first thing he said in, in his, in his um, uh, editorial first presidency message, something to the effect that modern art was not anywhere near as good as, as, as older historic art. And as an artist, I kind of took offense to that. So I was already a little bit, my, my hackles were raised a bit. And then he said that, um, that some people teach that there were pre-Adamites and they're, you know, that, that's just preposterous. So oh, I, he really got your goat. Oh, he did. And so I took it upon myself to write uh, a letter to the First Presidency, uh, to, to President Lee specifically, uh, uh, challenging that statement. So you really, I mean, that's kind of remarkable, I feel. I mean, most people today would never think to sit down and write a personal letter to the President of the Church and correct. <laughs> well, at that time, I didn't know it was inappropriate. We, we've done things more in an appropriate fashion since then. So uh, maybe it wasn't so much inappropriate back then. It was more acceptable. <laughs> at least I didn't know it was inappropriate. Okay. I didn't know I was supposed to go to my bishop with such issues. 
<laughs> I just went right to the right went straight to the, to the source. source. <laughs> okay, so back to your so you you started out anti-evolution. You come out on the side of evolution. Literally in a in a in a two month period or wow. one month period. Yeah. Okay, and from there you never looked back. Yeah, that's right. right. Never looked back. So you feel as though evolution. I mean, I. I use the word feel, but you believe it's a truth. It it is a truth. Is that is that accurate to say that? Well, no. Uh, Paul, I think, was looking at science in the year 2012 when he wrote to Timothy, when he said that in in, in modern in, in future times, that men will be ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we define that in science. We we never believe that we have truth in science because we never we don't have any gauge we we are looking for more and more accurate descriptions of nature but never know when we could call this thing that we have the truth so in 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 science rather than having a belief system we my belief is a a faith in the scientific process the scientific process has hypotheses which are tested. It's not a belief. A belief is more of a philosophic, uh, a religious phenomenon. And I have very strong beliefs when it comes to religion. But in science, you advance advanced hypotheses. Those hypotheses are tested. Um, you, you might progress to the idea of, of, of theories that explain Phenomena and uh, and on a smaller scale laws that that we can d- describe um, to explain what's going on within the context of the structure of hypotheses and theories and we have data. I believe in data. So I guess this le- this is a really good place to kind of segue into the actual book view, which is evolution and Mormonism, and and I want you to start by saying what. Um, the data shows then, if that's a good way to put it, about evolution. Do you agree with, you know, that data? And then um, explain why you decided to write this book. Well, if we, uh, to most people, evolution of other things is irrelevant. It's human evolution that everybody gets bent out of shape about. Right. So we can go right, to, cut right to the let's, quick. Let's, let's cut to the chase. And if we if we look at the evidence, if you will. We can, we can start with, say, the fossil record. Uh, in 1966 or thereabout, when I first started into this whole business uh, of biology as, as well as uh, the evolution side of it, uh, statements have been made that the entire fossil record could have been kept in a shoebox. Because it's so limited. It was very limited. And uh, the part of that fossil record included things like the Piltdown Man, which was a hoax. And, it, and a lot of, a lot of um, human evolution at that time was sort of hinging on this specimen, which was representing the missing link. And, and in fact, uh, it had occurred about the time I was going through my process of of questioning what was going on with evolution. Because in my opinion, I looked fairly carefully for, as a 13 or 14-year-old at the fossil, of all the fossil data that I could find, and it wasn't very convincing to me. First of all, I didn't have very much knowledge of morphology and human anatomy, which 
ironically, as my expertise now is human anatomy. But at that time, um, I, look, I looked at pretty much all the data, and I said, well, it's not very compelling to me. Now, uh, the, fo- the, the hominid fossil record couldn't be contained within, would take several rooms to hold so it's grown. The, fo- the hominid fossil data today. So life is very, very different in the last 50 years when it comes to the fossil record. So anybody that, that talks about the hominid fossil record and talks about any, any kind of sparsity in it uh, is unfortunately quoting um, outdated, science. outdated science material from, from over 50 years ago. So that's number one. Number two is that this the huge mass volume of genetic data, which culminated a few years ago in, in the publication of the, of the completed human genome, uh, overwhelmingly supports the fact that we are very closely related to the rest of nature. And, and, and it is an absolute parallel um, to, the, uh, to the fossil record. So when you say related to the rest of nature, I, I just want to clarify that. You mean in terms of historically descending from or, I mean, talk about, about related. I'm talking about the genetic, the molecular fingerprints, the molecular data. Uh, for example, just within the last year or so, uh, careful analysis of that genetic data and the genetic fingerprints that we've been able to, to uncover from Neanderthals indicates that humans have a Neanderthal marker. Right. This is, I'm going to stop you here. This was one of the parts of your book that was so satisfying for me to read and, and new, complete, you know, it was a revelation to me. And I want to, I really want to get into that and address that, but I, I still want you to, um, kind of explain having, um, you know, that data, coming to a conclusion that that is the data and then making a decision to write a book. Why? Well, why the book? Why the book? Well, um, the book was written for you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I really do. Um, you can well imagine that as a person who um, wears my religion on my cuff, one cuff and my science on the other, I make no bones about it. <laughs> uh, it, it I, I, I taught at ISU for 30 years. I taught at the University of Washington for four years before that. I taught at BYU for two years as a graduate student, and uh, I don't know that a year went by in any of those years that I didn't have a student come to me and say, it's very clear to me that you're very religious and very committed to the church, but you, all, but you talk about evolution all the time, uh, and I do. Uh, in my opinion... Uh, Theodosius Dobyshensky, who is a famous evolutionary biologist, I use the term like everybody else, even though I think it's a redundancy, he said uh, many years ago that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And I apply that all the time when I'm teaching. Uh, I, I help students understand modern human morphology by discussing the evolutionary trends and toward that morphology. And, uh, so anyway, it, 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 I don't think in my entire career there has been a, a semester go by, let alone a year, 
without one of my students coming up to me and saying, I've had a problem with this my entire life. How, how do you resolve this? What do you, what, what do you think of Adam? What do you think of the Garden of Eden? What do you think of the creation story? I have eight students already of, already, and, and I think seven of the eight are LDS. And I think already two of them have come up with this question. Okay. So this is something that you've encountered all, all the time. Career. Over and over and over again. So then typically when a student would finish, when, I, when, when a student and I would finish this discussion, the student would say, well, can, is there any place I can go read anything? And I could say, well, you know, you could go back and read some of Talmadge's writings or Woodsow's writings pre-1972. And I use that as the watershed because before 1972, we can think of the pre-molecular era. Uh, and and post-1972 is really getting into the molecular era when we really now start not just understanding how genetics may interact with with evolution and natural selection, but more precisely how molecular biology gives us evidence for evolution and, and connectivity in, in nature. And, and so the, the strongest evidence has been in just the last 40 years. There's, there really wasn't any books that had been written during that time period. So finally, I had a student who was actually not a biology student. He was a theater student uh, here at ISU. Uh, he was required to take a biology course, and he, he came to the department chairman, uh, Dr. Rod Seeley, who was also, is also LDS, and complained to him that the, the t- teaching assistant in his zoology laboratory was treating evolution like it was a fact. And this was disturbing. And this was disturbing to him. And so <laughs> instead of Rod taking it on, he knew that it was m- much more of a passion of mine, so he sent the student to me. And we had probably a two-hour discussion, which is pretty typical for me. If a student comes walking up and asks me, I'm just like, I love this, I love this topic. Let's <laughs> this, talk. This is my mission. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so after a couple of hours, he said, you need to write a book about this. And I said, well, I've thought about it a lot, of, a lot, but it's always been on the back burner. And he said, no, you need to write a book about this now. Did you, do you feel, and was your experience that you were easily able to persuade these students, or did you get a lot of pushback? I mean, were generally they very receptive? Of... <laughs> I set lots of traps for students who 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 love who who are very obliging and step into it. Uh, I mean, and it's it's not, in my opinion, it's not a trap in a negative way. Uh, in fact, in, in the paper that you wrote that you had me look at, uh, you, you said that there's two two different ways of looking at the scriptures. One is from a uh, from a literalist perspective, and one is from a non-literal perspective. I look at the scriptures from a literal perspective, and I argue that people who uh, who claim to be looking at it from a literal perspective don't don't really, and they don't understand the scriptures. Well, now so, I'm curious, so explain okay, so, that. So you're a student who comes up to me after class and says to me, how do you reconcile your, your science and, and religion? And I start, instead of starting with biology, I start with the Bible. Okay. So. But the Bible says it, six days, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, the Bible, yeah the, Bible, <laughs> the Bible says that the world was created in six days, and then 24 hours after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, even they were dead. Because it says, in the day that you partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. So if we take the six days as 24-hour days, 
then we must also take the day after they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil as a 24-hour day. 24. The earth was created in six days. Adam and Eve lived one day. It's all <laughs> over. It's a short movie. So what I'm saying is that people, it's, it's quite interesting. What you just did is you selectively chose what you were going to right, right. read so, uh, so let's go on to another question. The question I have that I typically ask students is, were Adam and Eve inherently immortal when they were created? Well, I know it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> I've already warned you. <laughs> Look out for those leaves on the path. That's right. You shouldn't have warned me. Um, well, so I, apparently they're not inherently immortal. But what happened to Adam and Eve when they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What was the outcome? They received knowledge and were kicked out of the garden. Oh, good. That They received knowledge and they got kicked out of the garden. The Because I had a student come up to me just yesterday, I think, or the day before, and said, please tell, I guess it's actually now three out of the eight have come up to me, because <laughs> <clears throat> this was actually in the middle of lab. And falling like flies. <laughs> and, and he said, he, he said, could you tell me from a physiological perspective what happened when they partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? How did they become mortal? I said, the scriptures don't say that at all. The consequences, you're correct. Uh, there aren't very many students who give the, the correct answer. They receive knowledge, and we're not told what that means. I, we have no idea what that knowledge was because we're not told anything about it. But we do know they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And a third thing happened. It, to keep them from coming back into the Garden of Eden, what happened? Let's see. Something was, the angel came to protect the tree. And then... An angel with a flaming sword was placed to guard the way of the tree of life, lest Adam put forth his hand and partake of the tr fruit of the tree of life and live forever in his sins. And we're not told early in Genesis, or in the Pearl of Great Price for that matter, what this tree was for. But after they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're told that if they had gone, they could have gone back and taken fruit from that tree and been immortal. So we now can then backtrack to the time when the Garden of Eden was created, and there were two trees planted in the midst of the garden, we're told, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, after the fact, we know the tree of life was the source of immortality. If Adam and Eve had been inherently immortal, why would there be a tree capable of giving them immortality. And secondly, there is no scripture that says that Adam and Eve were inherently immortal. They were not created in an immortal state, um, or I should say there's no scripture that says they were created in an immortal state, unless you canonize John Milton's Paradise Lost. That is so Milton says that they were created as immortal beings. So we that is a, a Christian tradition. It's, a Christian it's become tradition. a Mormon tradition and we just it is so it. it is so strong that it's a it's a paradigm that people don't even know they have. <clears throat> and so people who say they take the Bible literally and then make these assumptions are not taking the Bible literally. If you take the Bible literally, then we have a tree in the garden which was keeping them immortal. And their separation from that tree started the sort of the degenerative process of immortality, if you will. It's interesting that in the celestial kingdom, as it's described, there is a tree of life. Apparently, 
uh, there's something about that. Now, I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe Linus Pauling was on the right track. Maybe it's some kind of a super orange tree, you know. So now let's go into the evidences of, the D- of DNA because from, you know, from my perspective, a non-scientist perspective, I, um, when I got the book and I started reading the book and, and, and other books like it, I, I was struck by the fact that I accepted the evidence of DNA in so many places, in so many ways. I mean, I grew up the daughter of a prosecuting attorney. And so, you know, here was my dad who used DNA evidence in, in prosecuting criminals. And I had accepted it, but disregarded it or felt as though I had to disregard it when it came to conflict with faith. So I want you to start from that perspective and, and kind of talk about that a little bit. Sure. And, and that's, that's exactly, uh, in my opinion, what people do. They fully embrace modern science when it's and these wonderful <laughs> advances in modern science when it supports their, their ideas. And if it helps us to, to catch criminals or, or uh, in many cases now helps us to exonerate people who have been convicted wrongly, uh, people are very accepting of that. Uh, but when the very same data are used to demonstrate that humans uh, are very closely related to our living relatives, uh, other animals, uh, then people are horrified uh, and repulsed by the same exact data. That's when they like to call it a theory. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, the philosophies of men, and it's, it is just written off. It's not the philosophies of men, it's data. So explain to us how it's the same. So you can take a, a group of primates, and I think we've even done this in our, in our book. Yes. You can take, I think it's like chromosome four. There's several chromosomes you can do this with. And so you can take um, a gorilla, an orangutan, a chimpanzee, and a human, chromosome four, and look at them. And you can take these four, and it's, it's astounding that most of the chromosome, two-thirds, three-quarters of the chromosome, the bands line up absolutely perfectly. Even though they're different species. Different species. The chromosome four bands are in perfect register. <clears throat> Except in one part of the chromosome, and I'll just take, there, there are several examples of this. In one case, the gorilla and the, and the orangutan differ, but there's a, a dramatic case in which the human differs considerably from the other three. But if you take a pair of scissors, and it's actually two inversions now. You take a pair of scissors, you know, you can print this off on paper, take a pair of scissors, cut it out, and invert that section of the chromosome. And now the banding pattern is, again, perfectly in alignment. So we, chromosome, chromosomally, is that the way you would say uh-huh. it, are very, very similar. Uh-huh. And we can look at this, uh-huh. and it's fine. Okay, now bring DNA into this Okay, so this. So now if you look at the DNA sequences, then you can get down into much, much more minute details. So let's just, let's compare this to uh, someone writing um, a text, a a page of text, Uh, and it's being copied by hand. Let's, you know, go back 800 years when the monks were sitting in their little dark cells and copying sections from the Bible, let's say. And so uh, this whole entire page of text, uh, a monk 
makes an error, one letter error. It should have been an A, and he makes it an E. So then the next person to copy that manuscript copies the E instead of an A because they have, that's what they're copying from. And that person makes another error, several lines separated within the text, and puts a K in the place of a T, and so on. And we would think that this is a very logical way to link documents. Uh, we use it all the time. Right. I mean, we, we link that we, you use this to link documents. And nobody is thinking that this challenges right. their faith. Uh, but everyone, I think, would accept that those kind of things happen and that this is a wonderful way to trace the history of a manuscript. It happens all the time, every day. Because in how, biology. how common would it be that, you know, 500 different monks would make the exact same error it, on the exact, it, exact same letter? Yeah. If there are 2,000 letters on this page that you come up with exactly the same error, is is quite remote. So you're saying that this is how we trace DNA? Precisely. And, and we're interested in the non coding regions, the, the ones the that are turned off. Uh, so there are vast stretches of our uh, genome, non-coding regions, the right. enzymes. And so it's just sitting there, waiting to be mined? For yeah, I, I don't like the word just. It's sitting okay. there. It's, it's sitting there. It may, be, it may be spacing, you know, spacers that are important in things. Uh, it may regulate in, in various ways uh, the timing sequences of when various genes are read, and I think that becomes incredibly important in making us who we are. Okay, so let me just, I'm going to kind of reiterate back to you what you're saying to make sure I understand. So here we have this um, genome sequence, and only small parts of this genome sequence function and contribute to building proteins, which then can, you right. know, build cells, et cetera, right. et cetera. Or, or actually, yeah, it's actually read out as... Proteins, right. yeah. And so the rest of it is sitting there, um, not doing these things um, that are necessary for us to. Right. Yeah. It, and, it, and if these are spacer regions, and if they're, they're they're having some kind of a physical function within the chromosomes, the the sequence of letters there appears to be unimportant. It may be important that you have, say, two hundred uh, nucleotides there as spacers, but. These so precise it's natures. It's like a script. It's it's like a script that we can at will change letters without affecting adversely the organism. So let me just say this then: if you could change a letter on you know the genome, and then that person has a child, then that would be changed in the child. Correct. And so you could link, you could look at the DNA, and you could say, oh, this is so-and-so's child because they have this very specific gene change that, that we changed. Okay. The Y chromosome doesn't have a partner, and so it doesn't cross over, and, and, and the genes don't get shuffled around much. Likewise, mitochondrial DNA is unpaired, and so it doesn't get shuffled around much. Okay. But, but both of those still have mutations. So we can follow the entire maternal line back for hundreds of thousands of years. And the Y chromosome back, looking at a parent and a child, the child is not, there, there are not a bunch of mutations occurring uniquely in that person that the child inherits. But what you get is a unique combination of unusual DNA sequences that give you a, a bigger profile. And so now link us 
using that link us to another species? So link us well, to. Uh, so if, if, um, and the, the numbers here may not be precise. They're kind of ballpark numbers. Um, you are 99, your, your DNA is 99.999% similar to everybody else's DNA in the world. And it's that 0.001 that's being used right. for criminal cases. Okay. We are 98% similar to chimpanzees. So very close. So to we're only 2%, and I think it's more than 90, it's like 90.5. We're, we're no more than 2% different from chimpanzees. That just indicates that we have a common ancestor. Yes. Way back, we have a common ancestor. Because someone that's... eventually passed on that same sequence to us and the same sequence to a chimpanzee. Right. And, and we can, so we can see it in the DNA sequence itself. We can see it in the structure of the chromosomes, uh, which is reflecting that. Uh, so, so those two things are, are very powerful genetic evidence. You know, your book talks about something called band and randomness. Bounded randomness. There you go. Bounded, yeah. bounded randomness. Uh -huh. And one of the issues is um, people coming from a religious standpoint say that Darwin couldn't be right because it, it requires that, there, that nature is just this random process and that we would be a result of just complete random processes in nature. But that if we are created in the image of God, then God did not... In, you know, he did not create us randomly, that, that we are in his image. And if nature is random, those two, those two things don't line up. And so I want to address that issue and explain what bounded randomness is. And Well, it, it's interesting that um, b uh, both from a religious side and from a scientific side, people emphasize the stochastic nature of evolution, this randomness uh, of evolution. Uh, and many scientists argue, in fact, I was just watching a program late last night uh, on, on I, I usually watch either the Science Channel or the History Channel all the time when I'm, even when I'm working. I, that's how I overcome it's my... It's your background noise. My, it's my background noise. That's how I overcome my ADD, and I can, I can actually work because I have the TV going. And, and I, so I either have the History Channel or, or the, the Science Channel on all the time. So I was watching on the cha uh, Science Channel a program on... Uh, through the wormhole, that series, uh, on what do aliens look like. Uh, so th there were several uh, scientists on, on this program who were emphasizing the stochastic nature of uh, ev evolution and that therefore we wouldn't be able to make specific predictions about life on other planets. I take the exact opposite perspective uh, and um, argue that there are laws governing specific aspects of evolution that we have yet to discover. And that makes it absolutely exciting. And if there are any young people listening to this podcast, uh, I would argue that this is one of the most exciting aspects of science uh, for all time, is the fact that there are setting out there waiting for people to pluck off the tree laws of biology. Well, what I'm interested in is that boundary, the transition. So if you, if you were to draw a circle, if you're standing inside of the circle, what happens to you, in, anything that happens inside of the circle is just as probable as anything else inside the circle. So it's totally stochastic. It's totally random. You can make no predictions about what's happening in the circle. So, for example, 
if you look at um, uh, a thousand nucleotides uh, in DNA in a cell, you cannot predict which of those is going to be mutated. It, any is as likely as any other to be mutated. Uh, let, let, just for simplicity's sake, let's just say that we have five letters uh, representing the five nucleotides, um, A, C, G, and T. So for an A to become a C versus an A to become a T versus a this nucleotide to mutate versus some nucleotide 900 sequences away appears to be totally stochastic. Now, now to step outside of the circle, an A will never become a B because there is no such thing as a B in this uh, in, in this nucleotide sequence. So it's really interesting. So what's the difference between one millimeter inside of the line versus one millimeter outside of the line where life is stochastic and then life doesn't can't occur and from my perspective so um, my, my interest is in morphology and is in the development I'm a developmental biologist an embryologist as well as being interested in evolution as it, as, as it relates to morphology so Inside of this ring, we have animals that have no legs. We have animals that have two legs. We have animals that have four legs. Um, but getting something like a pegasus, which would have then six legs, if you will, right. because the wings, wings would be limbs, uh, for vertebrates doesn't seem to happen. Uh, another example would be mammals. Um, all mammals have seven cervical vertebrae. So th 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 this, this boundary, for some reason, is keeping us confined to seven cervical vertebrae. We don't have any idea what that boundary is. Birds, on the other hand, can vary from 12 cervical vertebrae up to 23, 25 vertebrae. So what you're saying is there is all of this randomness that determines what we are and who we become. I mean, you know, the mutations and all of these things. However, there are limits to how that that behaves. Right. Okay. Correct. And, and what's exciting is that <clears throat> most of those limits are yet to be discovered. Okay. And that is, to me, extremely exciting. So when, when, when science said, or, you know, when we hear statements about, you know, I mean, this comes a lot of a lot from kind of an atheist perspective as well. Is that is, nature is completely random, and what you're saying is no, there there are limits to randomness. It's only completely random because we don't understand the story. It, that's interesting. That, that's as foolish a statement, in my opinion, is for people to say Jupiter can't have any moons. Okay, we're not gonna, we just we'll, haven't discovered it. Precisely, we we okay. we we're, you know, we're not going to look at the through through Galileo's telescope at the moons of Jupiter, because we know Jupiter doesn't have moons. Right. I've been told that in my own uh, grant proposals to the NIH. You know, we, we, we can't look for this structure in the embryo because every, everybody knows it doesn't exist. Well, I've looked for it and found it, thank you, even though I didn't get funded to do the study. Okay. So I, I guess, um, so what you're saying is you can, God could allow this system to happen, he could he could be the author of evolution, 
and and somehow guide it. And you're proposing that these bounded this these bounds are kind of his maybe his system of guiding it. Is that am I articulating? They, they, they are his. There are laws. There okay. are laws governing the bounding. We just haven't discovered them as yet. So. Um, I, in fact, uh, yesterday I was talking to a student about this, uh, and and he was, he was, he was very strongly on the theistic side of this whole thing, arguing, well, how does evolution? He, he said, well, I can understand microevolution, but I don't understand macroevolution. So I th- started talking to him a little bit about these laws. So if you go back, say, four hundred years, five hundred years, uh, we know that at that time there were seven. Uh, planets, the movable stars, and that each star was assigned to an angel, which was responsible for, for pushing it around in, through the sky. Right. Well, I don't. I mean, you may still find people who believe in angels pushing planets around. There are all kinds of weird people in the world, but today, most people don't have any problem with understanding that planets move around the sun by two laws. One is gravitational pull, and the other is acceleration. So the gravity keeps the star from the planet from flying off into space. The speed at which the planet is traveling keeps it from being sucked into the sun. 400 years ago, no one knew that law. Those two laws. Right. And now we do. And so now we can bring more order to our understanding of the universe because we understand the laws involved. Um, And no one has today, I think, would think that this is a a, a religious issue. Um, Other than people who already... And, and it's, it's my opinion that scientists already have, in their own minds, established whether there is a God or not, independent of their science in many, in many right. cases. And so when they see the, all the scientific evidence, they say, oh, well, it's just more evidence that there, there's no need for a God. Uh, whereas scientists who are religious uh, can say, well... This does not eliminate God, or indeed, if there are laws, it even gives us more evidence that there that there is a God. So you're saying that science is science, and that the person who is addressing science comes at it with their own personal beliefs, whether it's you know right. religious or atheist or agnostic, and they're going to imprint that belief into their science and and marry the two, and they're going to interpret the science in light of their their own uh, personal perspective, and and uh, yeah. And, I, and unfortunately, I think that um, that a lot of the great theological writers and thinkers of the past have, have done religion a disservice because they've made it extremely vulnerable to science. Um, you know, you have somebody like John Milton who writes that the world uh, hangs from the corner of, the, of heaven from a gold chain. Well, it doesn't take us very long to go looking for a gold chain and Find out. Find out. Moton didn't quite know what was going on. And and when you start recognizing that there are problems here, then some people start dismissing the idea that there are angels at all or that there is a heaven at all. Uh, and 
And you're saying that's because they come from a perspective where they've always made a certain assumption because probably they've received that same assumption yeah. from someone else. Well, and, and, and I think a lot of it, unfortunately, is because of the religious training that they've had. And, and you know, they're, in my opinion, my, there are a lot of Christian religions that are so fanciful that they don't, it doesn't take much to topple them. For example, uh, you can find uh, websites that define what a Christian is that claims that if you do not believe in a literal six-day creation, you can't be a Christian. Well, count me out then. Uh, and, and, and so what's happened is that, is that these religious people have sort of set up straw men that are very easy to knock down. And once you knock one down, then you start wondering, well, what about the rest of them? But how do we, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I was telling you a little bit before we started, um, I've had experience saying to some, you know, someone in my ward or, uh, you know, an acquaintance in the church, I believe in evolution. And I believe that man evolved from primates. And they have said, well, the prophets have said. And so then I feel like I can't voice that very often because I'm going to be in that situation over and over. But what's our solution then? I mean, how do we approach this knocking well, down well, straw men? Well, the way, the way I approach it in church is to recognize that there's not, not enough time in either the Sunday school class or my priesthood class to even begin to discuss it. So uh, I, I, I do offer to the, cha- the talk to to some people after church about the issue, but I don't usually bring it up in the middle of Sunday school class because there's no, there's nowhere near enough time. Uh, I think, I really think that we need a much better education system within the church. Okay, like uh, what, we're, what, what kind of education system? I, I don't know. I, I, I like what you're doing. I, 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 I think that things like this are very important. I think that it's extremely important to get the word out to people that faith is independent of this realm. And uh, uh, Sir Francis Bacon stated this, I think, very, very well when he said that there are four causes in the universe. And these causes, they go clear back to Aristotle or uh, at least. And Bacon was wrestling with these because the medieval scientists were much more interested in what we call the final cause. The final cause being the purpose of things. For example, it was clear to uh, medieval scientists that ants were created to teach us the principles of industry. That's their entire function. That is their final cause. And so Bacon argued that Science is not capable of dealing with those kinds of questions. Science can deal with the first three causes. The, if I can remember the the the, the uh, material cause and the efficient cause and the uh, uh, formal cause, but cannot address the final cause. Um, to just give an example, um, and in fact, uh, Aristotle himself used this example. Uh, you have an egg that was laid by a chicken, and it is made up of sub- certain substances. That's the material's cause. That's a material substance of which it's made. But 
it doesn't do anything. It'll just sit there on the table until it rots away unless you incubate it, which is the essential cause, the efficient cause. So you have to raise the heat to make, to turn it into a chicken. And then the uh, formal cause is the fact that when you incubate an egg, it's, it's not going to hatch out as a, uh, as a duck. It's going uh, to be a chicken. It's going to be a chicken. So it, it, there's a certain chickenness to this, which is interesting because we now know that's coded in the DNA. They didn't know that way back. But then the final cause is why do we have chickens? Why are there chickens? And Bacon said that that's not something that science can address. And he made a very, very important statement. He said it's not that the formal cause, the final cause is not important. In fact, it most may be the most important question. It's just that science can't address it. So what he did is very effectively, and, and many people view him as being the father of modern science because of this move, he effectively divided the world of knowledge between theology and, and science. And before him, people were trying to marry them always. Marry them, yeah. yeah. Well, and today we, you know, there are people who still look, who look at that boundary, that interface there. And I'm fascinated by that interface uh, myself and, and how knowledge from the one side influences our thinking about the other side. Uh, if, if, the, if, if this is true from the, from the final cause, then this can't possibly tr- be true from the other three causes or vice versa. And that's where the whole debate is coming. And unfortunately, in my opinion, most of the debate across that divide is based on incorrect, inaccurate information. On the one side, frankly, misinterpreting Scripture or reading into Scripture. I, I am a very literalist when it comes to Scripture. Read the Scripture and read what it says and don't read into it anything else. And unfortunately, we all do that. We don't even know we're doing that. And that's called a paradigm, and we all we're all fettered with a lot, well, lots of those. But um, from the from the standpoint of science, I think scientists often forget that there is a final cause, according to all of our predecessors in the sciences, and 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 then think that when, once they have a grasp on the on the first three, they don't need the the last one. Right. I understand. So it's, I am, I'm going to have to really think about this, um, approach to scripture. It's a new idea for me to read literally, because I, I think of myself as not literal when, it, when in my approach to the scripture. So that's an interesting idea. I, I view myself as being more literal than the literalists. Well, I, I guess. And, and going, going, going back to your question, you know, what can we do about this? Well, well, maybe one of the things we could do about it is to reinstate the good old, uh, Firesides that we that 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 John Widso and 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 Talmage and others participated in, and, and a lot of wonderful books came out of these, where they were would would travel around the church, you know, giving talks about these issues. And I have done that. I, I've spoken to groups at not only here at ISU but at BYU and at at Utah State. Um, it's only happened very rarely, and and maybe nobody knows how to deal with me or how to handle what I say. But but I I you know especially now that I'm retired, I would love the opportunity to go anywhere at any time and talk to 
groups of people about these issues because I think that the very salvation of many of the young people in the church depend upon this issue. And unfortunately, um, many bishops and stake presidents and seminary teachers and institute teachers, as wonderful as they are and as caring as they are, don't always understand the mind of a young person who is compelled to go into science. And writing about chromosomes. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And, uh, you know, you look at uh, the wonderful people who participated in the, in the past Olympics. Most of those young people were saying, I knew I wanted to be a gymnast when I was three years old. I, want, I knew I wanted to be a scientist by the time I was seven years old. And I can't understand on a personal basis, I can understand broadly, the drive for someone to spend their entire life practicing gymnastics. Uh, and they are going to the gym 10 hours a day, their whole life. Uh, that's amazing. But at the same time, I've spent my life 16 hours a day thinking about science. And if, if I have a bishop or a, or a stake president who happens to be a banker uh, or an attorney or a farmer or even a physician, those people ha- haven't had that same kind of experience in their, in their life. It's, it's, it's like appreciating a, a great gymnast, but not appreciating that life commitment. And, and the problem is, is that in the intellectual world, when one pursues some of these types of studies, they sometimes run into the same kind of dilemma that you did, and that is to say, I have to choose between these two worlds, one or the other. And for a person, you know, for you, even though you were passionate about science, your passion for your religion overrode that. But there are many kids who will say, well, passion is stronger, science is more important to me, and I don't see anybody that's helping me reconcile these two problems. So therefore... I have to go the direction that my head is telling me to go. I know this is a question you can't probably answer from a place of authority, but in your opinion, do you feel as though the church is moving in a better direction? Do you see progress within the church when it comes to this issue? Or do you feel as though this needs to be a place where we really focus and create progress? I I think... my opinion is we're in a transitional state in the in the church, um, and and by that I mean that the heated debates between people like James Talmage and Joseph Fielding Smith that occurred right after the turn of the century uh, aren't occurring, in, to my knowledge, uh, in the in the Quorum of the Twelve. But on the other hand, it's it's just kind of a. It's almost an it's almost like my Sunday school class that I mentioned to you. It's almost an unspoken thing where you really, uh, 
I'm going to have to address it after church. Okay. And I don't think the leadership of the church right now um, is really addressing it. It's um, it's it's interesting if you look at first presidency statements. Uh, the earliest first presidency statement going back to 1909. That was not just a chance year. If we if we look at the whole thing, issue of chaos theory, and you say, well, this was a totally random event. A- totally not. It was not a random event because 1909 was the 100th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin and the 50th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species. That's why the first presidency came out with a statement in 1909. Um, and, and so it... it it occurs during certain sort of heightened times when there are, uh, when the issues sort of come to the fore that the First Presidency makes statements. So, Today they're making statements about how we should behave, how we should treat our neighbors. Um, those, are, those are wonderful things, and that's what the leadership of the church should be doing and is doing. So because it's not... It's not a necessarily, it's not a loud issue. It's not something that gets discussed. And so I think it was um, uh, President Hinckley who once indicated that he used the word agitate to sometimes the members agitate for things. And sure. it's I, not it's not one of those things you're saying that you, you feel as though it, we're not agitating for. I, I don't think it's appropriate to agitate, agitate for changes in the church. I am I, of the opinion, and I know that, that prophets receive knowledge based on the questions they ask. But I'm not, since my letter to President Lee, I'm not an agitator. <laughs> you reformed? You're no longer. A, l- a little bit. And, and I'll, tell you, I'll, give you two, I'll give you two examples of my reformation. Okay. One is that when we wrote the book Evolution and Mormonism, uh, we, that is Jeff Meldrum and I, and Forrest Peterson was the, non-scientist who was involved in this project. Um, we felt it was important to get to have an authoritative statement of the church's position. And the only way you can do that is to write to the first president, see, which we're strongly discouraged from doing. If everybody wrote to the first presidency, the, the office would be swamped with letters. And so I totally appreciate that. So the proper channels are to go to your bishop, which I did. So the three of us elected me to go to my bishop, and so uh, I said, here is what we're doing. We're writing a book, and we need a uh, to know what the official position of the church is uh, on this subject, and the proper channel is for me to go to you and to ask you about this. And so uh, he agreed. He and I had been talking about the subject a lot. He was very aware of what I was doing. So he went to the stake president, uh, and uh, um, our stake president is, uh, was at that time, and the new one is now, very, a very thoughtful person, very intelligent person. And he uh, saw the value of this, went to the area general area authority, got permission for the bishop to contact the first presidency, which he did. And... Um, then he received back a letter from the First Presidency. And what the letter said is essentially, what it did is it included 
uh, the section from the Encyclopedia of Mormonism on evolution. So if you want to know what the official position of the church is, uh, that's the official position of the church, what's in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. And that's what we have subsequently published in our book. Uh, On a second occasion, when we were, uh, after I had written the book, uh, uh, again with Jeff Meldrum, um, Who Are the Children of Lehi, uh, it became very obvious to me when I was interacting with a number of anti-Book of Mormon groups uh, that... Uh, there's, there's a statement in the, the, in the um, synopsis of the Book of Mormon that that's, wasn't part of the original plates, but is written under the direction of the missionary committee of the church, that there is a, <clears throat> there's a statement in there that, that, that people who are anti-Mormon, anti-Book of Mormon, use all the time. Statement says that the Lamanites um, were the ancestors of the um, of Native Americans. And that's not word for word, but that's what it says. And didn't, didn't I mean, Joseph Smith kind of felt that way too. Yeah, J- Joseph Smith believed that, and, and certainly. And so that, you know, it's, it's something that, um, you know, I believed going through high school until I started thinking about it uh, and was sort of challenged on it. Uh, but, so I went to my stake president. Now, they go to my bishop, because I was the bishop. I was a bishop in one of the university wards, so I didn't have a bishop to go to. So I went, I set up an appointment with the stake president, uh, and I said, I, we've got a problem. Uh, Anti-Mormons are using this phrase and saying this comes from the Book of Mormon and, and then saying that this totally disagrees with the DNA evidence. He went to the, and he said, he looked at it, he, again, very intelligent, very scholarly person. He looked at it and he said, wow, I've never thought about that before. He went to the area authority who said, wow, I've never thought about that before. He contacted the missionary committee, and the feedback that I got from the state president was the missionary committee, whoever he talked to the missionary committee said, wow, I've never thought about that before. It's now changed. So it's no longer the there. So what it now says is that the Lamanites are among the ancestors of Native Americans, which is what I believe to be true, uh, and that's another podcast because uh, I think that there's ample evidence that the vast majority of Native Americans uh, came from Siberia, but there's also, but, but you have to understand genetics to understand that uh, markers of people coming from the Middle East into a larger population uh, can easily be swamped out, and, and, and there's no reason to believe that, uh, that there, we will ever find any genetic evidence of a minority group of people uh, among the Native Americans. So it really, I mean, it's, it's look, like looking for a needle in a haystack that you might never, ever find. Uh, well, worse than that, it's like looking for in a haystack for a needle that was never Put it's there. not there. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Or was there 2,000 years ago and has since been removed? Right. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit to that question then. It, it's not necessarily, and I just, it's not really being addressed currently. Is that how you feel? I think the church is moving in the right direction. Okay. It's just not addressing this issue at all. It probably will be addressed sometime. 
But I think that that sometime, to me, is yet a future event, both for science and for the church, because, as I said, um, the laws that underpin what we understand in biology have just not been discovered. And we are basically at the age, almost, of where physics thought that the planets were being shoved around by angels. It's almost that primitive in my, my mind in biology. A hundred years from now, people will look back to this era and say, it's amazing how much they were able to accomplish with what little knowledge they had. That's interesting. That's very interesting to think about. And I, and I to me, as a scientist, this is a, an absolutely exciting time. And if you, if, you, if you don't already know that I'm recruiting people, uh, make no mistake, I am. Uh, in my opinion, biology today is about where physics was uh, in the middle of the 19th century. So we're about 150 years behind physics in developing uh, or, or, or in discovering laws that help us to lay the framework for understanding the theories that we're dealing with. And, and you know, as you know, physicists are now back to struggling with what is gravity, and they're really working on that, and they're, they're struggling with some laws that are yet to be discovered. But I think they're way ahead of where biology is in, in general. Uh, we can, by understanding how the moon and the, and the, uh, orbits the earth and how the planets orbit the sun, we're able to shoot satellites up into space. And we know exactly the right speed they need to be traveling at to be able to put into a specific orbit at a specific height for a specific period of time around the Earth, we can predict very precisely when they're going to fall back to the Earth. We're not even, we're not even remotely close to that in the biological sciences. And there, have been, there are many biologists today, and in fact, I was just watching a program on the Science Channel a couple of days ago entitled, uh, What Darwin Didn't Know, and one of, this, one of the, the statements at the very end of that program is, that we are on the verge of discovering laws that help us to make evolution predictive. Wow. Not just to say, oh, wow, isn't this interesting to look at the history of the path of evolution, but actually to predict the future course of evolution. In order to do that, you have to know laws. That's very interesting. We're getting um, kind of towards the end of our time. Um, just as a kind of a, an end note, going back to Adam, I mean, you obviously believe in the church and, and believe and attend the temple. So, was Adam the first man? Yes. Okay. What does that mean? Yes, what does that mean? I don't know. I, I, I have some ideas of what it might mean, some very heretical ideas as to what it might mean. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, obviously, um, in some sense, you do believe he was the first man. Yes. Descendant from... He, re he represents all of us at that pivotal point. Uh, my, my guess is that his parents were homo sapiens. I mean, I don't think... I, I, there's so no way I would say that he's the first homo sapien. He probably wasn't even the first agricultural okay. homo sapien. Okay. But in our sense of what, what we are today, you do believe he represents the first man. Uh, he, he yes he 
and I'm, I'll give you a little bit of sort of an inkling of what I'm suggesting. I think he is the first man, much like we use the term first night. It doesn't mean that there wasn't someone before him. Okay. Uh, Okay. Very very simply, let me, let me put forward the idea that I have. If you look at almost every other Christian denomination, Adam and Eve caught God off guard and and surprised him. Because they... Because they, they... Because of the fall. God didn't expect them to fall. Come on. God is not omniscient. How can you how can you think that we have an omniscient God and then think that anybody caught hit took him by surprise? So then God had to come up with this new idea of having Christ come down and and atone for this sin, which was horrible and despicable and 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 bad. That is not how it worked at all. In the councils of heaven, not only was Christ's mission totally laid out, as we as we read in the scriptures, but so was Adam's mission. Adam volunteered to be, to represent all of us in the fall. Now, here's the interesting part in my mind. Christ's atonement was not just for those who came after him. It was not proactive only, but it was also retroactive. We had agreed to his mission in the Council of Heaven. We all, all of us who are alive voted on that voted in favor of Christ representing us as the atoning one, why then wouldn't we just as much have voted for Adam to represent us as the first man who fell? And just like Christ's atonement could be retroactive as well as proactive, why couldn't Adam's mission be proactive and retroactive? Okay, that's that's. I have never heard that opinion. Well, I'll probably be burned at the stake within a week. But <laughs> you want me to delete that there, part? There's out? the ultimate heresy. <laughs> have, have, give, give, given my background, do you ever think I backed away from anything? <laughs> no. Well, that is that is. I, I I have never heard that perspective put forth. And, and that's why I'm working on the book. Who is Adam? Because Adam, to me. Uh, represents a, a much, much more interesting character than what he's ever been depicted before. Well, I, um, I just, I just have one more question. I, not really a question, but I, I just want you to say then definitively, um, as far as the evolution of man, how did we evolve? Life begin well. I, yeah, I I am not a seeded from uh, an asteroid uh, proponent. I, I not that there wasn't a lot of DNA seeded on the Earth with a lot of asteroids that hit. Uh, there is DNA all over the universe. DNA reigns supreme, and any warm pond, if you will, in quotes, uh, any place in the universe where the conditions are right, DNA is going to occur. There's naked DNA floating around out in the ocean right now, and I think they, I think the number is like 20% of the DNA that we recovered doesn't belong to any species. So there's just naked DNA floating around out there in the ocean, which is really cool. I mean, most people think of the little warm pond as being something in our remote past. It's not, you know, there's DNA out there all over. It's everywhere. 
And so life is everywhere. And uh, uh, then as conditions change and uh, the, the uh, DNA is surrounded by cells, now how that whole transition occurred is a much, much more complicated story, fascinating story. We know very, very little about all of those processes. There's lots and lots of room for young people to do lots and lots of exciting work in that whole field. And how the DNA became associated with chromosomes and what the significance of that is, we nobody's even looking at. And then through the progress of time, life began in the oceans where the environment was correct. And then we had transitional forms that came up out of the ocean onto the land, um, or more precisely into bogs, and, and then onto the land, and that... Um, progressively, um, more and more uh, specialized organisms, eventually mammals appeared, and then ultimately primates. And primates then gave rise to the possibility of erect posture of hands-free to manipulate the environment of large brains, and that's us. That is very interesting. I just want to ask you a few final questions. This is kind of separate from science, but just from, you know, from your approach to um, the church and life in general. What are the three truths you live by? Uh, the three truths that I live by. First of all, there is truth. And that's, to me, that's very important. A lot of people, I think there are people who believe that truth is, uh, is, um, not absolute. I believe in absolute truth. Uh, I think the second most important thing is that there is life after death, uh, because everything in our belief system hinges on that. And that thirdly, because there's life after death, there is a God. And that that not a nebulous, ethereal sort of being who can dwell inside of us and fills up the entire universe, but I'm talking about a physical, corporal being uh, who, as in my bias is a super scientist, knows the laws of the universe to such an extent that here we are with our puny minds in, in, in 2012 being able to launch satellites into space and send space probes off to Mars, if we can do that, what can someone who has lived an eternity capable of doing? Thank you so much. I've had such a great time speaking with you. I really have enjoyed it. You're very welcome. I guess that's all for today. Okay. Good. <laughs> this is Sarah Collette with a Thoughtful Faith with Dr. Trent Stevens. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafraser.com.
See you. 